Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jaspal Singh again. Welcome to our podcast series on Consultant 360. With me today are two more amazing leaders in medicine. I have with me Kara Agerstrand from New York, as well as Ellie Hirschberg from, where are you these days, Ellie? Utah? I'm still in Salt Lake, yes. Salt Lake City. All right. That's fantastic. So introduce yourselves, if you don't mind. Tell us kind of what you do. Today's topic is about ECMO and kind of give us an idea of your experience. Ellie, we start with you. Okay. Thank you for that introduction, Jesspal. I'm Ellie Hirschberg. I'm a dual trained adult and pediatric critical care physician. I've been in practice now for almost 15 years doing both. I have had experience with ECMO both in the pediatric side and in the adult side. I started the Intermountain Healthcare ARDS Center of Excellence, and I'm in the the Associate Program Director for ECMO at Intermountain Medical Center, and um, I'm a professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Utah. Fantastic. And yourself, Kara? Thanks, I'm Jasper. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. I've completed all my training here and am currently trained in pulmonary and critical care medicine and I'm the director of our medical ECMO program. Fantastic. So for some of our audience, some of our audience may or may not be that familiar with ECMO. Obviously ECMO has gotten a lot of press lately. Just give us a brief overview, Kara, if you don't mind, starting with just about venovenous ECMO. Absolutely. So, you know, venovenous ECMO is a really remarkable technology that's actually been successfully used in adults since the early 1970s, but really took off in popularity and effectiveness in uh, the mid 2000s, sort of coinciding with uh, the first pandemic that I think we all remember, which is the H1N1 influenza pandemic, and, you know, has really taken, you know, the world by storm since then. The way ECMO works, is I like to uh, tell people, it's sort of like dialysis for the lung, in that we are going to be working you know, in series with a patient's native circulation, pulling blood from the venous system, running it into the ECMO circuit, at which point gas exchange occurs, carbon dioxide is removed from the blood, oxygen is infused into the blood via process of diffusion, and then that newly well-oxygenated blood is returned to the patient's venous system. That's a great overview. So I like this dialysis for the lungs, essentially. I like that term. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one. Ellie, but ECMO is not that simple. It's actually, obviously there's a lot more, there's a lot more functionality and some people do use AV or VA ECMO. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that if you don't mind? Yeah, just building on uh, Kara's description from a simplistic standpoint, it is essentially dialysis for the heart and lung, but it really takes, it can take over the function of the cardiopulmonary system. And traditionally, VA ECMO really was utilized for a time period to give the heart time to recover. And it was primarily designed initially as a cardiac support. It's been around for many, many years, and actually the data as far as the efficacy for VA ECMO is a lot stronger, but it's usually within a three to seven day standpoint that you say, okay, 
is this going to, are we going to continue this uh, support? And it's basically taking the bypass machine that is used in a lot of cardiothoracic operations and utilizing that at the bedside for a time period so that you take blood essentially out of the arterial system prior to it entering into the heart, or in some cases you drain early in the heart, and then you bypass it through the machine, you clean it, you oxygenate it, you remove the CO2, and then you feed it back, I'm sorry, out of the venous system, and then you feed it back into the arterial system so that it can provide oxygen to the rest of the body. The complicated factors with VA is that you really have to worry about blood flow through both the lung and the heart and prevent any coagulation or clotting to occur. You have to make sure that that the heart is working enough and has enough blood flow through it so that it can both rest and not have clots within the valvular system, which requires differences in pressure, differences in flow, as well as a significant anticoagulation. Well, that's a great overview. So basically VV and VA ECMO essentially have different sort of degrees of support for both the pulmonary and the cardiac system. And you can kind of dial up, dial down, but knowing that there's a cost associated or risk associated with elevating to VA ECMO. Is that about saying right? Am I saying that right? Correct. Right. So obviously the expertise or understanding of ECMO is beyond the purpose of this podcast. Today, we're kind of struggling with, for those of us very simple clinicians like myself. I'm a very simple critical care physician. And I'm just thinking about all the patients we had to take care of in this last pandemic. So I'm old enough to remember the horror of the initial pandemic that I think Kara alluded to, which is the H1N1, which I think changed a lot of, changed my career in a lot of ways of what I focused on. And at that time, I think ECMO was just kind of taking off from a learning and adoption across the entire systems and across the US and North American healthcare systems and probably globally. But since then we've learned a lot. And with this last pandemic, things kind of again, accelerated in use. Walk us a little bit through which patients are reasonable candidates for ECMO consideration for progressive respiratory failure. And how do you decide what are the sort of factors involved in that aspect? And if you can give us a little bit of a guide to that, maybe starting with you, Ellie, what things are you thinking about when someone calls you up and says, I think I might have an ECMO candidate. What are you going to be asking them and thinking about? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, just to clarify a bit, I think that um, H1N1 really spurred on the use and the consideration of ECMO for primary respiratory failure and so VV ECMO. I don't think the indications for VA ECMO have changed much other than the the evolution of eECMO, right? Where essentially in the in the midst of a of a code, you put people on ECMO. So just to clarify, I think the evolution of um, oxygenation support for patients who are failing conventional um, mechanical ventilation and are are struggling is sort of where we've really learned a lot in the last 20 years. Carol, any specific ideas that your thoughts of what, what goes in your mind about patients who are being asked to be evaluated? You know, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think who we could help with ECMO is really, you know, a constant question and something that we're always asking ourselves when we receive a consult, both from inside our institution and from referring hospitals. You know, certainly I think that calculus has changed as not only our, but like the global familiarity with ECMO has has evolved um, over the last 10, 15 years or so. But, you know, certainly, you know, the people, the guidance we have um, in the evidence 
is now really based off the two modern randomized control trials, the first being the CSER trial and the more recent EOLIA trial, both which looked at patients who you know, were with ARDS, a respiratory, acute respiratory failure, intubated less than seven days, who had severe impairments in gas exchange. So really patients with this most severe form of disease. When we're considering patients for ECMO, the things that go into my mind um, are number one, um, you know, how likely is ECMO to help this patient versus potentially hurt them while the complications, as Ellie mentioned, have decreased over the last decade or so. Um, they still are present and at times can be quite serious. And how likely are we to support this patient? You know, if someone's had a short duration of intubation, that's encouraging. If somebody has, you know, single organ failure as opposed to multi-system organ failure, that's encouraging or doesn't have other severe comorbidities as far as other chronic or, you know, life-limiting illnesses. Those are all factors that we, that we look into to think whether on um, that risk-benefit ratio, you know, lies in favor of ECMO. Certainly for this last pandemic, I think we've all probably gotten numerous uh, phone calls from, from institutions and from um, clinicians inquiring whether or not their patient is appropriate for ECMO. And, and even with COVID patients specifically, I think we've seen that we've all seen that change over the last year and a half. Perfect. So that's well said as well. So if I'm hearing you both say, if I'm a, if I'm a clinician at the bedside and I'm wondering, is my, is my patient a candidate for ECMO? Things I have to think about gas exchange. I assume I've optimized the current technology that I have at the bedside for lung recruitment for gas exchange and optimization that hopefully shorter duration of mechanical ventilation, that they've been not been intubated for so long that other things have started to happen. The chance of survival is so is, is lower. If I hear you correctly, then you're also saying ideally single organ dysfunction, not multiple organs, potentially is favorable. And then and then it becomes sort of a whole lot of guesswork. Is that right? Is that the right word? Or is it my, am I thinking yeah. this wrong? Get guesswork or voodoo, as it were. <laughs> I, no, I, to, to, to be fair, I think based off of EOLA and the Cesar trial, we do have some good foundation for understanding who's not a candidate. I think that's a better way to approach it. And when somebody calls me, I ask those questions of myself first. And the people who really are not candidates are people with overwhelming comorbidities who really have those disease processes are impacting not only their quality of life in that moment, but likely are going to portend to poor outcomes in the next six months anyway. That's not likely a person that you're going to say is going to survive, right? The second obvious one is people who don't have functioning neurological status in that moment. So you can have severe respiratory distress and severe hypoxemia and also have had a stroke that has been missed, right? Because as you're dialing up your ventilatory support, something happens, you've got the patient following all the appropriate um, ARDS protocols, and you haven't been able to assess a neurological status. So typically before we will say yes or no, we'll ask those questions of referring physicians. And in addition, you want to make sure that they're that their cardiac function is okay, because we know that a third of patients who have just septic cardiomyopathy, if the hypoxemia is from pneumonia, will have septic cardiomyopathy. And that also many times if the hypoxemia has been severe and there's predisposing pulmonary hypertension, that the RV may be under significant distress. And that changes their um, functional outcomes on just pure VV ECMO, certainly. Perfect. So Ellie, what, you're, what I hear you're saying is that 
basically don't look at it as who might be a good candidate, but rather than approach it, you, you approach it for who might not, who is probably not going to benefit from ECMO. So all the support I can give, who am I looking for that may not benefit? And then consider the stuff that I think Kara talked about before. Is that right? I think that's a little bit easier. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if Kara agrees. Yeah. And I think it's important for each institution to think what is their comfort level. If they're taking care of ECMO patients, but maybe just starting out, they might say, you know what, we're comfortable and we feel like we can help patients who are single organ failure type patients who don't have any coagulopathy or proclivity to bleeding or heart failure or whatnot. And the more, uh, you know, experienced centers are ones that have had taking, you know, to have uh, care for like multiple, you know, more patients per year might say, you know what, we're, we're, we're okay with a little bit of coagulopathy. We're okay with a little bit of heart failure in whatever way. Um, so, so some of those things are certainly variable by um, not only the patient themselves, but also, um, you know, where that patient's being cared for. No, that's a great framework um, to work with. And I can work with that. Um, as a simple clinical clin clinician, I can work with what you guys have described, but I have flashbacks to 2010 when H1N1 was here. We had the same conversations. We had the same framework. And then comes the pandemic that we're currently dealing with. Now you have that framework, but now you add to it different stressors, not enough perfusionists, not enough equipment, massive influx of patients. And both of you at various phases of the surge have probably got overwhelmed. And I think at some point invoked some sort of conversation about almost crisis standards of care. Talk to us about how you managed resources and worked with your hospitals a little bit, what you kind of went through personally during those phases, if you don't mind. Kara, since you were in New York earlier, I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks um, um, for that question. You know, I think this last you know year and a half um, or so has been extremely challenging for all the reasons you just mentioned, Jasper. And certainly for us in Manhattan uh, last spring, uh, March, April, even into May, you know, we were quite overwhelmed. We were receiving up to 11, 12 consults for ECMO per day, you know, far more than, than we could accommodate. And it was compounded not only by the number of ECMO requests, but just by the number of hospital, hospitalized patients in general. So we not only had to sort of fight to make sure we could help as many people as possible ECMO-wise, we still had to keep in mind, you know, how many patients just need our regular ICU beds, you know, apart from ECMO themselves. And I think, you know, we were very lucky to not have limitations with equipment or personnel and have a very supportive administration, um, especially during the surge where we were able to accommodate, you know, quite a few patients, but it was, it was quite challenging. We really had to, as we just spoke about, you know, focus on the patients most likely to have a good outcome. Right. Well, that's, that uh, helps a lot. Now, Ellie, you went through something really unique in terms of being out West and the geographic distance of the ECMO and the demand. And talk to us a little bit about what you went through and what you're going through. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's fascinating because our ECMO program is not numbers-wise as large as uh, CARA's program, certainly, but because we serve such a huge catchment area and because Utah has a unique referral pattern, we actually banded together the University of Utah and Intermountain Medical Center, the two hospitals that provide ECMO within the region. And we never, our, our governor and our state never really declared crisis standards of care, which makes it very difficult to invoke a lot of triaging decisions. But we certainly were at resource limitation, both on number of circuits, number of perfusionists, nurses, um, nursing ratios, ICU beds. We never ran out of ventilators, but we certainly ran out, ran out of ECMO circuits and staff availability. 
So we had to get together as a state, actually, and come up with ECMO triaging guidelines and a process. And we were not anywhere near the numbers of, you know, 12, 15 consults a day, but we were getting a couple and um, probably every day. And we got a number of um, requests from surrounding states, actually, as well, places that largely didn't have their own ECMO programs. And we had to really narrow down the, the criteria both for transfer and for ability to put on. I think in general, we, we sent out some checklists that kind of dealt with the ideas that Kara discussed before, which is, you know, does the patient have single organ failure? What are their comorbidities? How long have they been on um, mechanical ventilation? Have you invoked um, the other evidence proven things for ARDS? So have you been proning? Have you um, done low tidal volume ventilation with plateau pressure maxing? And you know, in, in practice and in theory, really the biggest benefit of ECMO is to provide adequate oxygenation and CO2 removal while protecting the lungs. So it's trying to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury. And I think what we discovered or what we found is lots of times patients who've been on prolonged high-flow nasal cannula and or in some cases CPAP or BiPAP had such high ventilatory drives on their own that they were starting to have some of the self-induced lung damage in terms of transpulmonary pressures that we hadn't seen previously. So we changed our criteria to include total uh, respiratory support, not just days of mechanical ventilation. Do you think now that I think the pandemic for all of us is sort of starting to ebb, hopefully this surge is the last we'll have for a while. And do you think that we're going to change how we approach ECMO, the triage, the staffing, the resources and equipment, all that in your own institutions, or can you speak broadly, more broadly than that? Ellie, any thoughts on that? I think that this pandemic is going to change the way we approach a lot of medicine with regards to staffing, or so I hope it does. Whether or not it changes ECMO specifically, I don't think we have a lot of data to support that. Yeah. I think it's very regional. Yeah. And, and until we can really come up with a clear avenue, I, I, I think it's hard to argue that. I don't know if you recently saw there's an ELSO publication that, you know, highlights some of the challenges of COVID-19 specifically. And to, to many of us, it seems to be out of the realm of what a lot of us have seen in the past with respect to sort of run-of-the-mill ARDS. Right. That's interesting. If you can send me that, we can add that reference to our, to our readers' reference list. Um, what you might, but you also mentioned some wholesale changes to medicine in general. Give me a couple of them, if you don't mind, that you anticipate happening. I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I would hope that we learned about the value of maintaining highly trained and dedicated staff, because in terms of process improvement, I think the staffing shortages have really been the bigger or a huge issue with respect to resource availability. That's well said. I would agree with that. Kara, what are your thoughts on this whole space? What do you see kind of happening trends or wholesale changes or lessons learned here? 
Yeah, I think that one thing that we will see regarding ECMO specifically is the, you know, these proliferation of new ECMO centers uh, that occurred during, or centers that do ECMO that occurred during the pandemic. You know, I'm sure many of them will continue to take care of ECMO patients or provide ECMO, you know, when, when necessary going forward. And I think especially for centers that maybe don't have that volume or that sort of catchment area to, to, to care for a large number of patients per year, you know, those new centers are really going to need to focus on training, on education, on kind of ongoing competencies for the staff um, caring for those patients. And that may be a new challenge that some of those centers see if they want to keep providing this high quality ECMO, which, you know, is, is really, is really our goal. Maybe you'd both agree with me. I also think I would add to that. I think the pre-ECMO care will hopefully become more comfortable for a lot of people. Like we see, a, we saw proning now done in a lot of hospitals. We saw heated high flow nasal cannula being utilized a lot of places that never really had this equipment. And once we got over the supply chain issues, I think a lot of that will change for respiratory failure management. But I think I have to come back to resources, including personnel and equipment and training and expertise. And I think that'll be very interesting, particularly when you get into things like dialysis for the lungs and lung and heart, you know, what does that look like in, in 2025, for example, will look very different. And I'm hoping that this has forced it. Well, this is a lot of information. You guys have given some phenomenal information. So thank you very much for all that sort of all that you do and all that you've done for your patients. I know this has been just beyond challenging, but in the latter part of our podcast series and this women leaders podcast, we oftentimes ask our participants, are your challenges as women, what are some unique challenges that you're facing and any advice for a lot of our audience members are, are women themselves or he for she like myself who are trying to support women in their roles. I'm thinking Ellie back to, you know, my wife who was, you and her did internship together in the ICU in your first month of internship. And I remember a lot of the struggles that a lot, both of you went through and what's changed, what advice, what thoughts start with you, Kara. I guess I see it as, you know, a lot of the, the challenges I think that I face are ones that I would face, uh, you know, just in academic medicine in general. I don't know that they're specifically related, you know, to being a woman, but I think, you know, looking for and finding, uh, you know, a mentor, someone who can help in career development, who takes interest in your career development, both potentially within your division or group, and also maybe at a larger institutional level, I think is, is, is very challenging to navigate as, as a young faculty member and also quite important for, you know, ongoing success. You know, I feel like I've had some really, and have some, you know, really wonderful mentors that I've been working with for the last 10 plus years and can't even imagine having to sort of navigate or help develop a program as I have without their support. So that's, that's important. So you're advocating for more of a, for people who have mentors, have relationships with senior people. And I'm hoping that you yourself will become now that mentor for somebody else kind of coming up the pipeline as we kind of, as you move forward. Is that correct? I, I hope so. You know, I think we have to you know, try to pay it forward here and, and help, you know, the rising kind of generation of, of you know, residents, fellows, and faculty kind of find their way, you know, in this very convoluted world of academic medicine. It's, it's sure. definitely, I think you can use all the help you can get. <laughs> That's the well said. Uh, Ellie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that is very well said. Um, I, I disagree. I think that there's a lot of female specific issues that arise. I mean, I think academic medicine is super challenging and, ideal mentorship and creating space where people can feel a part of something and, and alleviating some of the competition is, is gender neutral. But I think that there is a, there's a gender bias and an unconscious gender bias actually that 
that we have to actually bring into our collective conscious to change. And it, it happens from men and women. So I have noticed along my career that some of my female colleagues are, or tend to be most guilty or culpable, and even myself included, of that kind of implicit and unconscious gender bias, where if I'm asking an opinion, I will defer to the opinion of of a male colleague instead of a female colleague. And that is not something I was technically aware of previously. I've certainly experienced quite a bit of discrimination that, you know, across the board would seem in little tiny instances, brief windows wouldn't seem that much of an issue, but when taken all together, you can kind of see the system is working against you. Um, Something as simple as well, you don't really need the pay raise because you're married to somebody who makes money. That I don't think I've ever heard uttered to a male colleague. And, you know, that has been uttered to me. So I, I think going forward, what I'd like to see myself do is actually provide more genuine recognition, acknowledgement, and support of my female colleagues and and the folks behind me. And I think that's really where we we need to change it first in our own minds and our own hearts, and then kind of try to shift the system. Well, I think that's very well said. And I would completely agree with you. And I think that the science would agree with what you just said as well. There was a nice article from this last week at Harvard Business Review about women tend to also deal with burnout for their teams better. However, themselves, their own self-care tends to suffer more than their male colleagues. And so I thought it was very interesting what you're bringing up. And we can put that in our reference on the website as well as another reference for our audience members as well. But I I tend to agree with you that I do think there are unique pressures that are gender specific or at least more biased towards women and affect them to a, a greater degree. So whatever we can do to help with that, please let us know at Consultant 360. And I was just going to say, both of you did a phenomenal job of giving our listeners a lot of a lot of information to kind of go with. We talked a lot about sort of introduction to, to ECMO, both venovenous and arteriovenous, the dialysis of the lung and dialysis of the heart and lung, uh, but then also talked about sort of how the pandemic has shaped the utilization and also the overall uh, care of these patients, but also highlighted additional challenges going forward, including selection criteria, including resource management, including a lots of aspects of, of the critical care management of these patients. And then hopefully that we'll see some change as we go, as we move forward and some evolution in critical care medicine related to that. And then of course, we talked about how you as women leaders are going through certain aspects or need some additional aspects of mentorship and particularly related to addressing some of the unconscious biases that are out there. Did I miss some things? I just wanted to add something. And I was, as I was listening to that wonderful recap and I care, I don't know if you agree, but I think the biggest lesson that we took away from the pandemic and ECMO was call early, call frequently and ask a lot of questions because this is a still continues to be an evolution in process. I love that. And I love that you're going to share the the reference of the ELSO document with our audience, our listeners as well. So we can kind of look at the data and learn together. Kara, do you have anything else to add to as well? I think that was a really great recap. And, you know, I hope that the listeners, you know, find this useful and it's been a really nice discussion. Well, it's been an honor and pleasure having you both. And on behalf of Consultant 360, myself and Jessica, we want to say thank you to, for joining us and uh, have a great day. Thank you, Jasper. Thank you.